This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and I'm joined today by Tony Black. How are you, Tony? I'm great, Duncan. I'm still uh, trying to come up with uh, potential good nicknames to, uh, you know, to <laughs> given the kind of topic we're doing. I completely forgotten we needed to be coming up with with, with more nicknames. I, if we're going to have to do that for every one of the episodes <laughs> in the series, we're going to be really scraping the bottom of the barrel. I think. Um, I'm glad to be able to get on mic with you today, Tony. Uh, we tried a few hours ago to record as planned and I suffered what can only be described as a bit of a technical uh, nightmare, really. And not having, you know, Geordie or Scotty or some genius uh, <laughs> here to, to sort it out for me, we had to kind of postpone a bit. My microphone failed on me. Um, but I have now got another microphone working. I put out a distress call uh, in my local neighbourhood forum on Facebook uh, saying, basically, can anyone lend me a mic that I can just borrow for a few hours to record something? And as luck would have it, my distress call was answered. Uh, one of my neighbours uh, who lived 10 minutes away got in touch and said, uh, I've got one that I can lend you. And this might interest you. I, I So I went around to pick up the mic and I thought, I'm sure this woman seems sort of vaguely familiar I couldn't quite place her so I went and did a bit of sort of google stalking and looked her up mm. the woman who's lent me the microphone for today is an actress whose name is Lolly Adifope now I don't know if you uh, would know her name but I'm sure you would have seen her because the thing that she was in that uh, I was reminded of when I when I looked her up was the Alan Partridge show that was on last year she was the journalist oh, who was wow. doing the reporting in I know she is and had that amazing scene uh, <laughs> Where there was like a, it was all about the time delay and actually appropriately for us podcasting where there is often a little bit of a time sink issue uh every time alan partridge tried to talk to her there was a kind of time <laughs> issue and she was interrupting him and he, she was not hearing him and everything and it was just winding him up and winding yeah. him up and so on and then at the very end of the scene uh his co-host had a little exchange with her and it worked perfectly and you realized she'd been basically just uh faking it the whole time to wind him up and it's such a kind of silly joke but I have to say, it was for me that was one of the funniest uh, moments in that whole series. So there you go. Wow! Um, look her up, listeners. Uh, yeah. Great comedic actress. Um, and there you go. That's what you get if you, you know, 
Put out the bat signal, yeah. put out a distress call, say you're in need of help, someone will come to your aid. S- someone uh, so semi-famous. Here we are. You know, yeah, that's pretty there good. There you go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite good. But back to the topic in hand, we are back to our ongoing series of What's in a Name episodes, uh, looking at the kind of history and the background behind some of the more interesting uh, titles of Star Trek episodes. We made our way through the original series in the last instalment, I realised when we finished, we should probably have covered the animated series as well. So we're going to do that in this episode. We're going to start with animated series, and then we're going to take a little look at the movies and uh, the next generation. That's the plan for today. And my intention is that we're going to go up to the point where Deep Space Nine starts, and you get that kind of triple overlap, effectively, between those those three 90s Trek series. And we'll do that in a future uh, episode. So my goal is to get us up right to the cusp of emissary. We'll see if we get that far. But the animated series, to begin with, um, Tony, I think is almost as rich a repository of fantastic episode titles as the original series is. They're very much in the same vein, you know, uh, and the animated series itself, I suppose, as much as it is, you know, different formally from the original series, they were trying to preserve that continuity. It wasn't called the animated series. It was just called Star Trek. The idea was, yeah, this is more Star Trek. It's kind of the same thing. Yes, it's shorter. Yes, it's kind of pitched a bit differently. Yes, these are cell-drawn animations and not, you know, living, breathing human beings. But other than that, this is basically more of the same. And I think the same could be said when it comes to the episode titles as well. Yeah, definitely. They are really evocative. You know, we said in the last episode, didn't we, that season three really sort of built up. It might not be the greatest season of TOS, but the titles were fantastic pretty much all the way through. And if you consider TAS to be season four in all but name, just animated, then they really do continue that and they play on certain previous titles and they, uh, they, they do the odd pun here and there. It's just very good. I mean, you know, considering that the animated series is of varying quality <laughs> in terms of content, the titles, yeah, absolutely. You know, big chef's kiss to those because they're absolutely great. From episode one onwards, I think, Beyond the Farthest Star, this is a fantastic kind of real sort of classic sci-fi uh, gives that sense of adventure, excitement. It always makes me think as well of, you know, jumping ahead many, many years to the final episode of Star Trek Enterprise. You get that speech that Archer gives where he makes, and I can't think of the line, I don't have it in front of me, but he has some comment about, you know, beyond the next star or, or something along those lines. But it really conjures that sense of the kind of, you know, boldly going and this sort of great adventure somehow. Yeah, it's it's got, you know, it's sort of... Um it's a sort of title you could almost imagine a, a, a series, a Star Trek series being named. You know, it's got that really sort of intrepid idea to it. And uh, I feel like the episode is, uh, I think it's, it, they're investigating this strange sort of space station or this strange sort of starship out there. So it really does have that, you know, that idea of going out and exploring where no, you know, where no one had gone before. And that was the thing with the animated series. They were able to get away with some really wacky stuff because it was animated, because they didn't have to do the special effects live action. So even though some of these episodes don't hold water in terms of script and story all the time, the ideas in this are way out there. And that's why a lot of these titles really do match up. And of course, episode two of the animated series is the one that is generally regarded as the kind of uh, the jewel in the crown yesteryear. Quite a simple title, I suppose. Um... But again, quite evocative. I mean, in terms of TOS, it reminds me of All Our Yesterdays, that episode, which is another lovely title. I don't know that we, I can't remember if we talked about that last time around. But Yesteryear, obviously, uh, also a Spock story, 
really this quite complex and, and strange uh, tale in some ways, but with this deceptively simple title from uh, Dorothy Fontana. Mm, yeah, it's a beaut, that episode. If, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's, it, it, it is probably the best episode of this entire run of however many 20 episodes or so of the, of the, uh, the animated series. And, e- and even though it's, it's almost one of the most subdued titles of the whole series, given you get some really sort of expressive ones, it's definitely one of the better episodes because it does play on uh, City uh, on the Edge of Forever it, without being a sequel to that in any way. It sort of combines various different plot, thre- plot threads and brings back The Guardian in a really interesting way. So, yeah, if there was one episode of the, of the animated series I'd tell everyone to go and watch, it's probably this one. Yeah, definitely. It taps into that feeling of nostalgia as well, doesn't it? And um, the kind of bittersweet quality of, of memory and the past and, and all these sort of things. I think it kind of captures that very well, very simply. Next up is an episode, I have to say, I mean, I have seen the animated series, but not for a good few years. I could couldn't tell you what happens in this episode, but I love the title. It's just a title that really sticks in your mind. One of our planets is missing uh, because it's got that real cheeky sort of sense of there's some, there is something slightly absurd about it. The idea that, you know, a whole planet could go missing. It reminds me as well of there's a novel, uh, a Star Trek novel, which again, I haven't read, um, which is called How Much for Just the Planet, uh, which again, I just love because it's that idea, I suppose, for because partly it conjures up this idea of this grand sweeping universe and the scale of everything, uh, you know, for us on our planet, that, that's all there is. Do you know what I mean? The planet, our planet is the universe in some sense, but the idea of, you know, well, how much for just the planet or one of our planets is missing. It sort of toys with this sense of a kind of a very different scale, a very different scope um, that I think in a different way from these sort of grand heroic titles also conjures something of the sort of vastness of space and the um almost the absurdity of that on some level yeah definitely absolutely episode four the lorelei signal now this is um the episode where uh the men all get sort of entranced by these these sexy ladies and uhura is the one who has her moment in command it's quite a good episode in that respect and you get to see uhura commanding the enterprise I had to look this up, but Lorelei is a reference to a German legend, uh, a siren from the banks of the Rhine, I think, that lured sailors uh, to their death there. So that, that's where the word Lorelei comes from. Ah, I did wonder. I did wonder. So they, that, that actually has a very definite tether to this idea then. They, they very much have taken that myth and that idea and purposed it for this for this episode. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I, I suppose that's that's it, you know in line with previous Star Trek titles. You know they have done that. They have done plays on certain mythical ideas. But yeah, it's it's, it's a good title in that sense. It, a kind of an interesting one, insofar as I feel like there are quite a lot of these episodes where really the reference is quite obscure and is not explained anywhere in the episode and is not even one that probably most people would be familiar with. You sort of wonder were these writers just so well read that they were plucking these things out of thin air or, or were they frantically, you know, I don't know, down the library uh, looking for the most obscure phrase or reference that they could find to throw into these things to sort of capture that evocative mystery. But again, it's a good one. It's, it's an interesting one. More triples, more troubles, pretty by the numbers. I, I I think I said this before, I kind of feel they should have gone with a few triples more or something like that, something a bit more jokey. But, you know, it's it's a little bit of a tease again. And then we get an episode that I would say is the sort of proto-next-gen title, a proto-kind of proto-pillar approach, The Survivor. Very bland, very to the point. You know, one of the first, certainly the first in the animated series, I'm sure we, ha- we had some in 
original series, we have the empath, uh, you, you know, we, we, these kind of quite bold uh, statements that are just, you know, the X, this is what this is about, this one character or this one thing. Descriptive, sort of purely descriptive, I suppose we might say. Obviously, that's not to say that that can't be a bit of a tease. It can't be kind of evocative. It raises a question, you know, who's the survivor? You're going to watch the show and find out, etc. But um, these are probably the, the, the less interesting of them. After that, we get the infinite Vulcan, uh, which always reminds me of the ultimate computer. I sort of feel there should be, you know, a third one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then one of yeah. my favourite titles, The Magics of Megas 2, which oh, is yeah, probably my favourite episode of the animated series, actually, just because it is so absolutely uh, kind of batshit crazy, basically. <laughs> this is the one where they Bonk- meet Satan. Bonkers. They are transported <laughs> to the Salem Witch Trials. <laughs> it's mad, basically. And I think the kind of chaotic, anarchic, uh, historical madness of it is captured quite well in this title uh, with its magics with a K on the end. So it's the sort of archaic spelling of that word combined with this Megas 2, which, you know, has a sort of more sci-fi ring to it. I think the title captures that quite well. Yeah, it feels more like a fantasy title in some senses, I think. And that's... And and, and it... And it- it, you have no idea what it means. That's a, it, it's more like an in, incantation in some ways. You know, it's one of those it's one of those titles that could mean almost anything in a way. And they could have gone with something far duller, like you know, Lucifer or so. You know, something like that. That's that's a bit like, oh, okay, we get what this is. You know, they meet Satan. But no, going for that, very very expressive and interesting. And yeah, it, it sums up the episode because it is. I mean, it's it's not necessarily brilliant, but it's. Wacky. It's great entertainment. Now, next up is Once Upon a Planet. Again, I kind of tying into the, the nursery rhyme or the, or the fairy tale, in this case, uh, sort of literary tradition, I suppose, and gesturing at the fact this is set on the shore leave planet once again. This is a place where these kind of sometimes slightly silly uh, stories as part of our kind of collective I was going to say literary culture. I mean, they are part of our literary culture, but particularly that idea of, of, of things that are sort of aimed at children or a little bit silly or a little bit kind of of a light entertainment, I suppose. Um, again, a slightly teasing episode in that it's kind of marrying that slightly silly side with, uh, you know, the planet of, of, of science fiction and something that sounds a bit more kind of exciting. It's, it's a good it's a good inheritor in that sense. It's not necessarily the most expressive, but, it you know, it, it, it explains what it is with a little flourish of a little flourish of sort of whimsy about it, which is which is quite good. I'm going to jump ahead uh, a few episodes. Um, the next one that kind of jumped out at me as being uh, a bit interesting is this episode, the um, ambergris, and I think that's how that word is pronounced, the ambergris element. Um, ambergris, if that is how it's pronounced, is a material produced by sperm whales. Uh, so it's kind of alluding to the uh, sort of seafaring, underwatery aspect of um, the show. Again, a slightly obscure reference in some respects for a Saturday morning, you know, kids cartoon. Um, it's also one of these elements, one of these elements, it's also one of these episodes that I noticed there's a kind of a, a format for these episode titles, the something element, uh, the something episode, the something incident, uh, the something factor. Uh, there are these certain words that you get where it, it seems like a way of, of kind of constructing 
there's a certain format there that, uh, you know, the more you look out for it, the more you'll notice how many factors there are and how many incidents there are. I mean, we had the Enterprise incident before, but we're going to have other incidents uh, coming up in the future. This one is the elements, the ambergris element. Um, and this is the episode where Spock and Kirk are turned into people and... Uh, go and have adventures underwater yeah yeah this, this is another this is another strange one but it's quite it's quite good in that it's it's tapping again it's tapping into something that is you know a, an actual element but evokes a mystery evokes a level of curiosity and i think i think that it is good at that you know it's good at that with these kind of titles so yeah it's it's a good one and again very science fictiony very, very science fictiony. Okay, next episode after that is the Slaver Weapon. This was adapted uh, from a short story. I think it was called the Soft Weapon, um, but possibly not a huge amount to say about that one. Uh, episode fifteen, Eye of the Beholder, or rather the Eye of the Beholder, because Eye of the Beholder is a next gen episode. Uh, this is a case where Star Trek literally uh, used the same episode title twice, possibly because maybe when they were doing next gen, they were in that kind of period where the animated series was considered to be of questionable uh, value or of questionable canon status um but it is basically the same title uh, just with a the in there um the eye of the beholder obviously beauty being in the eye of the beholder according to the you know popular saying this is an episode uh, where there are people and creatures in zoos and things there are these giant slugs uh, that are um so i suppose it's just this this idea of your perceptions of, you know, others, aliens, etc., uh, not necessarily being the only way of, of looking at things, if you know what I mean, if there's something being something more complicated than that. Yeah. I, th- I think as well, they didn't, they didn't really, I th- it had been long enough. I think the Eye of the, Eye of the Beholder is later on in, in TNG, isn't it? So I think maybe it had been long enough that they were just a bit like, oh, no one's going to remember 20 years ago, an animated show. You know, I, th- I, I, I would get the impression that they were a little bit more blasé about that kind of thing. Whereas I don't know if that would happen now. I think they would probably not try and repeat an episode title. Now what we get, now what we get instead is a uh, whole series taking the names of episodes. So we've got Lower Decks coming up. We've got Strange New World. I mean, obviously Strange yeah. New World is a, is a reference to the, you know, whatever yeah. you call it, the Captain's Oath, the bit at the beginning of, of, of uh, the original series and Next Gen and so on. But it is also an episode of Star Trek Enterprise and now a series. So there's this potential for confusion somehow with these borrowings uh, of titles. Uh, back and forth and, and and the sense that Star Trek series titles are having to get more complicated I mean it used to be just you know uh, well Deep Space Nine Voyager Enterprise you, you know there was a kind of simplicity uh, to that uh, setup although Enterprise I suppose was more of a departure because they dropped the Star Trek and they decided they could just call it Enterprise and that would kind of be enough anyway sticking to the animated series uh, we have the Jihad quite an interesting title in this day and age I, I guess in the 1970s maybe it didn't have such a sort of resonance uh, but it is indeed about a holy war that risks um, breaking out in the galaxy then we've got the Pirates of Orion pretty self-explanatory and then a great little episode BEM now BEM is the episode uh, about the strange Enterprise crewman who can kind of um, detach his body into different parts and his name is indeed Bem but the word Bem is a reference to uh, B-E-M which stands for Bug-Eyed Monster and this was David Gerald's uh, oh, right, episode okay. and this was his he, he kind of really wanted I think to get a sort of classic sci-fi Bug-Eyed Monster uh, into Star Trek and as a member of the Enterprise crew now Bem is not exactly a Bug-Eyed Monster but he is quite strange looking and quite quite a sort of odd one so that episode title almost a little kind of in joke in itself i think 
Yeah, and uh, interesting fact, that was the first time that, in, in well, in what is now canon, that Kirk's middle name Tiberius is ever said as well, Ben. Ah, oh, there you go. So... Uh, yeah, quite quite a memorable episode in, in a couple of ways. Absolutely, and obviously, and, and you know, talking about names, I mean, we could we could have a whole episode about the names of different characters in Star Trek. But I think giving Kirk that middle name, which is so uh, grand and sort of frankly ridiculous, <laughs> kind of you, you, you know, uh, there's this element <laughs> yeah. of kind of uh, I don't know this <laughs> this sort of idea of him as this larger than life, great heroic hero for all time or something. Do you know what I mean? In there, I think. Um, is there almost an element of satire in there? Is there something? And it, and it fits so oddly with James and Kirk, which are both sort of monosyllabic, quite simple names. There's even the line in the 2009 movie, isn't there, where they debate, should they call the baby Tiberius? And they're like, no, we'll call him Jim. <laughs> you know, this is... We're not going to go... Uh, we're not going to go with the ridiculous name uh, in this instance. Albatross. Now, this is an interesting one. This is the episode where Dr. McCoy is accused of causing this or, or, or failing to treat this plague, uh, uh, an error in his past, basically. Um, a slightly obscure one. The best I could find was the idea that it is perhaps an allusion to the rhyme of the ancient mariner and the albatross in that uh, the ancient mariner shoots an albatross, his ship is becalmed, and it's a kind of... Um, a crisis that sort of, uh, I suppose, is something he'd have to live with the rest of his life. I suppose more generally, we talk about an albatross around your neck as something that is kind of weighing down on you, the result of a past decision or a past mistake. So I guess that's the illusion there, but it's a slightly abstract one in a way, I would say. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I didn't know that off the top of my head. So yeah, it's, uh, it could mean various different things, I suppose, but. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Next up, we have How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth, one of our Shakespearean quotations. Now, I think this is the only Shakespearean quotation we actually get in the animated series, as far as I can tell, unless uh, I've missed something. Act 1, Scene 4 of King Lear, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth It Is to Have a Thankless Child. And this is also, of course, for what it's worth, the episode that features a giant... Uh, Feathered space serpent <laughs> god monster thing. Uh, so that, that, yeah. there may be a kind of hint of that there as well, I think. It's a good episode, that, actually. I, I, I enjoy that one. It's Quetzalcoatl, I think, isn't it, from um, the Aztec sort of legend. I think it's that. Uh, and so, again, it's quite bonkers. But I, I think it's just a great... It, it, that is very much, for me, in line with that season three TOS sort of title aesthetic. It's one of those fairly long titles that sort of asks a rhetorical question as you say it's that shakespearean um quotation as well it's great it's really good and it's it, it could in fact be the last great star trek episode title for quite a while that mm -hmm. one that'd be an interesting uh interesting to see how how far do we have to go before we find one that's kind of up <laughs> to that standard that kind of classical yeah. uh, grand mm, sort of but also quite sort of evocative uh title that you get there yeah finally the counterclock incident um i actually really enjoy this episode it's another incident it's another one of these you know incidents uh, <laughs> that we that we're going to get as we go along before we move on to next generation i just thought we should have a quick talk about the movies now obviously star trek the motion picture not a huge amount to say about that one that is pretty much uh, 
does what it says on the tin. I guess when they made it, they weren't expecting it to be, you know, one of six or one of 13 or, or however you want to think about it. When it comes to Rotha Khan, though, there was a lot more debate and discussion about the title for that one, because originally I think Nicholas Meyer wanted to call it The Undiscovered Country, because obviously it features death, The Undiscovered Country being death, it features Spock's death. Um, and I suppose that was the key element that he sort of wanted to pin down with the title. Now, he was told that was too obscure. A Shakespearean title was not where they wanted to go with it at all. Uh, and it had to be something more kind of um, descriptive, I suppose. And that's, I guess, why we got the focus on Khan in the title, as opposed to this kind of rather vague reference to death and the fact that Spock was going to die. But it's an interesting thought, thinking of that film under the title The Undiscovered Country, because death is such a presence in that film. And the kind of... the unknowableness of death and the unwillingness to face that uh, on Kirk's part is such a big part of the story. It actually, you know, it would have been quite an interesting choice to give it that title. Obviously, that's not the way that things went ultimately. Yeah, I think it would have been fairly brave in a way because... I th- well, I mean, it was, it was brave, I suppose, in 1991 as well. Maybe audiences have become a little bit more literate over that next decade in terms of titles particularly with star trek i don't know it it, may, it does make you wonder i mean i think the wrath of khan had a level of pulp to it that maybe did help the franchise at that point especially after the motion picture had been quite you know slow paced and I, you know it, it, that that does appreciate with age that film to be fair the motion picture but at the time i think they really wanted to sort of project star trek as being a little bit more action packed exciting adventurous you know, and and so the Wrath of Khan, I think, was it's it's it's. I mean, it's a lot of fun as a title, but it's a bit more B movie, and I think maybe that was what they needed at the time. And you know, it worked out great in the end because I th- I think the Undiscovered Country fits Star Trek Six far better. So you know, it, it maybe it all happened for a reason, I guess. And at least Star Trek Six is a film that is packed with Shakespearean quotations, so they kind of couldn't really make the argument that it didn't you know, that Shakespeare and Star Trek weren't compatible. I think, though, again, I'm unfortunately, uh, I don't have my copy of A View from the Bridge here with me, but I'm pretty sure there was another round of arguments where they tried to change the title of that one a second time, uh, and they sort of spewed out various kind of meaningless combinations of words. There's quite an interesting section in there. I don't know if you've got your copy to hand, where Maya talks about um, the the titling process of that film uh, and how they basically ended up with what he'd always you know been going for in the first place and they sort of grudgingly accepted it second time round. I have to dig that out no I haven't got it I haven't got it with me unfortunately but yeah it rings a bell rings a bell but yeah I mean it, it's it is great ultimately that Meyer eventually got to use that title on a project as we say that was probably more it was probably a more of an evocative place and evocative sort of, you know, illusion than you would have had with Khan. And, uh, you know, or maybe, maybe we're just so used to the wrath of Khan. Maybe it's just one of those things now where it would have been just as good, but we just can't imagine it. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, the wrath of Khan as well, though, I think it took them a while even to get to that because, uh, isn't this the film that had to change its title because there was, um, Star Wars was going for, this must have been Return of the Jedi, I think originally was going to be Revenge of the Jedi. There was a, there was a different title for the Star Wars movie. And then 
the Star Trek movie, which was going to be called The Vengeance of Khan, I think had to change its name to The Wrath of Khan. And then, in fact, the Star Wars movie changed the name as well. So you had these, the, both these franchises kind of uh, flip-flopping on what exactly these um, titles were going to be um, to avoid the danger of two of them, both with the word vengeance or revenge in the title. And in fact, what we got was neither of them had the word uh, vengeance or revenge in the title. I mean, The Vengeance of Khan, that would have been cool. That would have been really good. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think Roth Roth in itself has a little bit more grandeur to it, I think, than Vengeance, actually. You know, you think of things like the Grapes of Roth, you know, you think of certain you know, and, and I'm not saying that's a direct literary sort of takeoff or anything like that, but I just think that Roth has it's a little bit more ambiguous than Vengeance. Vengeance is a, is far is even pulpier, in fact, than Roth. So I, I yeah, I kind of much like I think Revenge of the Jedi wouldn't have been as good as the one we got, you know, in the end. But again, are we looking through it from a prism of we can't imagine anything else? I mean, with, with, with Return, of the, with Revenge of the Jedi, you know, famously the poster was made. You know, that is a thing that's out there and it look, it looks really good. I'm not going to lie. And, and of course he used it for Revenge of the Sith in the end. So, but again, I think that's a better, that works better. That works better in that context because it's about, you know, a, a, a villain in that sense. So yeah, I think. I'm glad that Rath, they went with Without Rath. wanting to turn into a Star Wars podcast, I mean, it makes more sense for the Sith to enact revenge than the Jedi, in a sense, because we think of the Jedi as, as the, the good guys, you know, and, and hopefully should sort of be above that. But yeah, anyway, it's interesting. But it's an interesting question, I suppose. If You know, and a lot of these episodes had alternate titles. We kind of don't have time or resources to go into all of them. But I mean, you know, it does raise the question, how much does the title influence your... Uh, feelings about the story and if it goes under a different title does that kind of change the meaning of it in some way i don't know there's a huge amount to say about the other original series movies i mean obviously the final frontier is another one of these uh you know like we had where no man has gone before and we're going to have where no one has gone before like we had in enterprise we had a few of these uh series that kind of quote star trek's own sort of iconic language um Voyage Home is fairly descriptive. Search for Spock, pretty self-explanatory. Basically the subtitle of season two of Discovery, I think, as well. I I was going to say, though, just about The Final Frontier, it feels a little bit, retrospectively, a little bit of a con, actually, because it sort of suggests that they they, they are going to go, you know, where, where no one has gone before. And I guess I suppose they do. But The Final Frontier almost for me is it feels a bit more about sort of pushing out and exploring whereas the final frontier is more about well it's about finding god and it's about going to the center of the galaxy and it, i mean it, in itself it's it's a bit mad because you know the <laughs> the sort of uh, you know logistics of that don't track with other things we've seen in Star Trek, in, you know, but certainly in the 90s, you know, when you get to the TV shows. I don't know. I just feel like it was always, given what they found at the centre of the galaxy was a con in itself, I just feel like the title, it never really feels like the final frontier. You know, if it, I, I don't know. And I know I know the final frontier, I suppose, you know, the idea is that it's it's God, you know, that it is religion, it's finding the creator. But I don't know. In, in, in a way, I almost feel like that would have worked better for the first film. For instead of the motion picture, because in a way that would have represented Vija and what what Vija was trying to find. So 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. It doesn't quite work for me. Something sort of genuinely transcendental as opposed to yeah. what we get in The Final Frontier, which is, as you say, really a sham. I mean, they do go to the centre of the galaxy. They do, you know, they do go somewhere that no one has been before. But you're right, I suppose. It's maybe not quite such a monumentally uh, meaningful voyage as it's kind of sold to be. That's an interesting point. No, given how easy it is as well. Mm. <laughs> you know, in the end, it's not that difficult. You know, yeah. you think to yourself, how has nobody done this before? It doesn't seem that far away or hard to get there. So, Well, and again, you know, by the time we get to Enterprise in that speech that I alluded to earlier, uh, we get Captain Archer's line, the final frontier begins in this room, uh, which kind of suggests that the final frontier is not just about space and exploring outwardly it's about some kind of cooperative venture uh you know exploring together it's the kind of you know it's a frontier of human and alien development as much as it is a literal description of space in the sense of the west as a frontier of a kind of geographical expression well shall we move on then uh a few years to the next generation so we've got star trek coming back but once again uh, with some of the same key players on board, people like Gene Roddenberry, DC Fontana, both uh, working on the pilot episode and, and staying with the series from then on. And it's an interesting one, Encounter at Farpoint. For me, it sounds like quite an old-fashioned title and not particularly a Star Trek title, but there is something about it. It has that kind of evocative mystery to it, I suppose, which I guess is part of what the episode mm. was going for. Yeah, I, lo- I, like the, I like the name Farpoint. You know, I feel like that, th- th- in the end... It didn't really live up. The episode doesn't really live up to that title in a way. You know, Encounter at Farpoint makes it sound like they really are on the edge of something amazing. And it's it's not the best pilot, is it? Let's be honest. So I, I think, yeah, it, it's it's about, it is a better title than the episode, I would say, mm-hmm. for sure. Quite a few of these probably we could say that about them. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are <laughs> some, epi- some great episodes that are, you know, cursed yeah. with boring titles and some uh, not so True. great episodes that, you know, where the title is maybe the best thing about it. Next up, we have The Naked Now, obviously a reference to The Naked Time or The Naked Time. I don't know, depending on how you uh, sort of want to, to phrase that. A weird one, I think, insofar as it's calling back. I mean, we talked about this before, but the extent to which Next Gen, despite trying to do something new, was also sort of trying to recreate the original series and obviously the way that next gen was sold it was sold in a package with the original series there was this idea that the two of them should kind of be uh put together i think this is one of the reasons why quite cynically patrick stewart famously never unpacked his bags because he sort of thought well this entire show really only exists so they can get a few extra years to tack on to the original series and kind of keep that one rumbling over you know with the spin-off sort of tacked on the end so interesting in this early period of next gen you've got the naked now you've got where no one has gone before which obviously again alludes to the the words spoken by picard at the start of every episode but also alludes to the original series episode so that's you know two episodes in the first uh you, you know five or six that are basically setting themselves up effectively as sequels or at least companion pieces to original series episodes. Yeah, and it feels a lot like they are anxious at this point, which I'm sure they were, about standing on their own two feet. And I mean, I mean, I, I think this almost could be one of the reasons why The Next Generation doesn't have the most vibrant titles throughout, because maybe they were, they were, they were on the one hand, you know, scared about doing things their own way, but also they, 
I don't know. I think they knew that by by doing titles like The Naked Now, where no one has gone before, they're gonna they're gonna immediately make the original series fans wake up and go, oh, okay, is this a sequel? You know what is what's this? You know is that. So I, I don't know. I think in the end, maybe doing the more boring titles that they 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 do wasn't the best idea. Maybe they should have done more of these evocative kind of titles, not necessarily sequel titles, but the kind of evocative things we talked about with the, with the animated series. I don't know. I mean, it, not, not that it really damaged the show because you know, the next generation does very well, but it, it just feels like these titles are directly referencing the, the original series, but they would have, they, they could have done so many more evocative sort of possibilities. You know what they could have called, they could have called the battle, you know, they could have called it Stargazer, maybe. You know what I mean? And it, well, that would have been far more, oh, that's cool. That's And then you find out the ship's called the Stargazer, but it's far more evocative than the battle. So it feels like they miss a trick at various points, really. You certainly get an increase in these basically purely descriptive episode titles. The battle, Angel One, uh, Haven, which is the, the name of mm. the, the planet, I think, isn't it? In that, I haven't seen that episode for years. I, think, I think so. Uh, even Justice, which is a little bit more... Yeah sort of conceptual I suppose but he's basically saying yeah this is an episode about justice and people spend the whole time talking about justice and what it means <laughs> so you know again it's, it's pretty descriptive of the episode you do get Lonely Among Us Lonely team. Among Us is one that I feel could almost be a, a, an original series episode that, that is a little bit more yeah. mysterious a little bit more evocative um, also mm. you sort of wonder who is the us you know who are we uh, I yeah. know, it sort of raises yeah. a few questions there and then you get these sort of slightly cheeky episode titles because I think I mean when we were talking about it last time round, I was kind of slightly dismissive of what I described as the kind of pillar factor uh, with Next Gen. Now, obviously, th- this is kind of pre-pillar Next Gen, I think we're talking about really here. But these kind of slightly bald, slightly uh, formulaic, descriptive episode titles. One thing I noticed going through the list and sort of preparing a little bit for this discussion is you do get quite a lot of these slightly cheeky, slightly punning, uh, you know, often slightly sly episode titles that seem quite straightforward, but there's a little bit more going on. So you get something like The Big Goodbye. Now, The Big Goodbye is a combination of um, two uh, novels, two sort of, you know, pulp detective, um, uh, hard-boiled detective novels, The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye, uh, but kind of merged into one, The Big Goodbye. Uh, so, you know, there I think there's a little bit more of... You know, there's a, a bit more of a kind of play on words, I suppose, in the title there. Hide and Q, the first of these kind of Q episodes where relentlessly pretty much every Q episode for the next God knows how many years has to have some kind of a, a sort of Q <laughs> pun in the title. This, I think, is one of the weakest yeah. ones because it doesn't really make sense. I mean, Hide and Seek, fine. Hide and Q, you, you know, it's not, it's not like some of the others yeah. where there's a rhyme or there's some reason why you put Q in there. It's just like, uh, just, <laughs> replaced one of the words <laughs> in a phrase with Q almost quite randomly yeah. I would say strange but at the same time I don't know it, it kind of it, it it at least works because with retrospect we see it as part of this sort of pattern and in a way Encounter at Farpoint is the one that should have had a Q in it and you know um, yeah obviously Tapestry later on is going to kind of break that pattern but for the most part the next gen writers were quite uh determined, I think, whenever they had Q in an episode to <laughs> get that letter uh, and that word into yeah. the title. They were trying to get that playfulness, weren't they? They were trying to evoke that playfulness in the title that you get with the Q episodes, really. And maybe that's why they didn't do it with Tapestry, because it isn't as playful. You know, it's probably the more serious Q episode 
they ever do. And, and for my money, probably the best. So, you know, it's, it is, it is interesting how, how they go down that road. But I, I definitely like the big goodbye. I think that's a really nice, you know, a really nice play on, on things we know. You know, people will recognize those, those probably will recognize that, that sort of mashup, that sort of, you know, Raymond Chandler mashup, which I, th- I think is, you know, especially given the, you know, the fact it's a, it's, it's a Dixon Hill episode, um, which is all about that kind of world, you know, so noir and stuff. So yeah, it, that's, that's great. That is playful and more playful than you almost remember from some of these early titles, I think. And Dixon Hill, of course, in the Star Trek universe, I think was written by the novelist Tracy Tilme, who is the writer of those episodes. So there's a kind of, again, a sort of level of playfulness in there with this fictional creation that is so obviously a pastiche of real world, uh, you know, very similar real world creations there. Next up after the big goodbye is data law. Now, this is an interesting one because on one level, it's basically just, you know, data and law stuck together. But I think by making a word out of it, it does make something that is quite intriguing and quite sort of mysterious and quite, it's an interesting one, especially because I suppose it partly it draws the contrast between their two names, you know, data being something that is so factual and precise and sort of almost without baggage or interpretation or anything that, you know, the data is just the science. It's the kind of purest form of information. Law being something that is much more about interpretation and kind of meaning and, you know, more more sort of cultural in a way, if you think of, you know, the idea of what law means. And it's something that um, Michael Chabon actually very much picked up on in Picard when he named all those other uh, sort of descendants of data with, you know, Sutra, and um what were the other ones called um what was the the english one called she was called oh. um i was going to say like encyclopedia or you know bibliography or something <laughs> do you know what i mean she, she, <laughs> legend in, in or something. I don't know. yeah yeah exactly yeah in carter yeah. that'd be a good one you know they they, they there was a sort of sense of the, them being named after these kind of bodies of knowledge or information or something and i think it's interesting by calling them data and law and by putting the two together into this sort of compound word like that uh it sort of draws attention to that somehow yeah i also think it's a little bit sort of computerized in a way it sort of rep it sort of feels a little bit like a command almost a computer command you know data law it's, it's some, there's something a little bit te- technological about it and i think that fits up for obvious reasons then we have the great unpronounceable episode title 11001001, which I think was almost like a test for any obsessive Star Trek fan to learn the name of that episode uh, to sort of prove your credentials. I remember, you know, being at school and and diligently memorising this sequence of numbers without, I think, realising that they were, you know, that they're pairs of numbers and they they are all the pairs of ones and zeros, if you know what I mean, kind of uh, effectively, you know, two ones, two zeros, a one and a zero and a zero and a one. That, that That's that, that's what the title is. It reminds me these days very much of, there's an episode of The X-Files that um, similarly, rather than being in binary, is in some other kind of code language, isn't it? And I'm going to yeah. put you on the spot, Tony, as the X-Files uh, fan. <laughs> have, you, you know, have you gone and learned the name of this? Utterly unpronounceable uh, I, episode. I know it starts with RM. I think it's RMBG and then it's numbers. But I, I know it as followers because the actual translation of it is followers. Right. So I think people for ease call it followers. And it's basically like a uh, like a, a command code because it's all about an episode about an artificial sort of intelligence that sort of takes over smart homes and drones and things like that. Um, but yeah, the translation of, of it roughly is followers. 
So there's a bit of a cheat there. At least you you can at least remember that name. <laughs> this would be a great. Actually, I just looked it up. This would be a great um, pass. You know, when you're always asked to change your password, this would be the perfect one. I'm sure it would. You know, any any system would be happy with this one. Yeah, because it's, it's got a mixture of capitals and lowercase, but it's RM9SBG93ZXJZ. Reminds yeah. me also of actually, um, you know, in the episode Brothers, where Data changes the password for like control of the enterprise to oh, this, yeah. you know, impossibly long sequence of, of numbers and, and letters and so on that no one's ever going to be able to crack. It's quite an interesting one, obviously, you know, alluding to the binars and the idea of binary by uh, having a, an episode title actually appears to be written in code. Now, sadly, I don't think 11001001 means anything. Uh, in the way that the X-Files one, you know, was actually translatable. But um, it's definitely a very striking and evocative uh, episode title. It's different from anything else they do, I think, really. Now, Too Short a Season. This is an interesting one. This is about the uh, the, the, the um, Admiral who's, who's sort of de-aging or whatever, or who's trying to kind of recapture youth to... to uh, prevent the aging process. Um, this is a paraphrase, I think, from a Shakespeare sonnet. Sonnet 18, which is the famous, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, which has the line, and summer's leaf hath all too short a date. Now, this is what, from my research, is, is generally seems to be understood as, as the reference here. So it's, it's not even a quotation. It's a fairly um, loose allusion, but this idea of too short a season, summer, the summer of our lives being too short, essentially. But even without being a direct quotation, it certainly feels like a literary illusion. It feels like one of these, um, you know, Shakespearean quotations or, 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 you know, quotations from other literature that, uh, you know, Star Trek has been borrowing, particularly in the original series, probably slightly less so in Next Gen. But, you know, we'll see going forward. There are certainly a few of them. I think it's probably the most evocative outside of Lonely Among Us mm. they've done so far. Actually, it's nice. And possibly another one where the title might be a little bit better than the episode, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of which, when the bow breaks, uh, obviously a return <laughs> to nursery rhymes. We had we had some nursery rhymes uh, in the original series. Here we have um, Rockabye Baby being invoked here uh, in the story of the planet where they're kidnapping children. After that, an episode that on first glance I was going to pass over, Home Soil, because it sounds so sort of prosaic. Uh, but then it just occurred to me, this is one of these ones where I think the more you think about it, the more there's kind of a slight pun there because um, as much as, you know, we talk about being on home soil, it is a kind of almost a, a fairly meaningless expression. In the episode, it's all about the soil and these creatures that are living in the soil. Uh, and I suppose that's their home. So, you know, we think of home soil as just a kind of meaningless expression. This is almost sort of teasing those words apart and, and kind of making it mean uh, something a little bit more. This is the episode with famously with the phrase ugly bags and mostly water, I think, uh, comes from this one. Again, it's not one that I've seen for a long time, but it was just one of these episode titles that struck me that maybe it's a little bit more doing a little bit more work than it appears to be on first glance uh, because there's a slight kind of pun there or a slight uh, little kind of nudge going on. Skipping ahead a little bit, The Arsenal of Freedom. This is a great episode title. I feel like this could be absolutely be an original series episode uh, title. It's also a fantastic episode. I'm pretty sure the reference is to the Arsenal of Democracy, which is a phrase that was used by uh, Roosevelt um, during the Second World War. So he said in this, in this uh, speech in December 1940, 
We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. We must apply ourselves to our task with the same resolution, the same sense of urgency, the same spirit of patriotism and sacrifice as we would show were we at war. Um, obviously, this is an episode about arms trading, effectively. And so there's an element of kind of satire there, I think. Um, and the fact that it's the arsenal of freedom, you know, it's supposedly going to be this great thing. This is, you know, sort of the, the myth we're going to you know, spread freedom around the world with uh, guns and weapons and so on. Um, and that's kind of the slightly jingoistic uh, promise that's being sold by the arms trader in that episode. So it's, a, you know, maybe a little bit of a kind of satirical element there, but also just a great uh, title, I think, in its own right. Yeah, it's really good. It is really good. And th- this this is one of those episodes that I'd forgotten completely, and you keep telling me it's brilliant. So I need to go. I need to go back and watch. This that was one. one of the ones when you did your <laughs> when you did your rankings. Uh, your um, yeah, you, you know, where you asked people on your Facebook group to to vote off their least mm. favorite episode. You kept voting for this episode, and there were a group of us who were like. You know, Tony, are you mad? Have you seen this episode? It's really, really good. It's way better than, you know, it deserves yeah. to be in season one of Next Gen. Uh, did you go back and watch it? I haven't yet. No, right, okay, it's, it's on the list. I'll get there eventually. Okay. On the list. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. Jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, we'll always have Paris, obviously, a Casablanca reference. This is an episode that yeah. features Paris significantly, but also, I suppose, this kind of feeling of, you know, love lost and uh, this sort of bittersweet, poignant um, element around that as well. Sort of pretty self-explanatory romantic title in a way, isn't it? I suppose, you know, yeah, most a lot of people, I think, will probably get the reference who are watching. And yeah, it, it, it beyond that, that's, there's, that, that's about it, really. Now, jumping ahead into season two, another great episode title. I mean, actually, although we've been saying Next Gen is going to be boring and prosaic, I think these early seasons of Next Gen do have more of the kind of um, original series style episodes. These, these, these more, slightly more evocative episode titles, at least kind of mixed in there. Where Silence Has Lease, uh, which is the episode with uh, Nagilam, that strange disembodied face that creates havoc and uh, causes that that amazing meme of the guy clutching his face and, and you know, face exploding or whatever it is that's going to happen to him. Uh, oh, yeah. It's quite a weird, <laughs> nasty episode in some ways. Anyway, the title comes from a poem by Robert W. Service, who says, Yet it isn't the gold that I'm wanting so much as just finding the gold. It's the great big broad land way up yonder. It's the forests where silence has lease. It's the beauty that thrills me with wonder. It's the stillness that fills me with peace. Um, so I suppose the idea of the, you know, the forest as this sort of mysterious environment where, uh, silence reigns in a sense where silence, uh, has, you know, kind of the freedom of the place. And I, I suppose in a sense that, the great unknown of space having something in common with that and, um, you know, the, the inky black uh, mystery of it all. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right in that some of these some of these se- season two titles, maybe it's the best season for, for these kind of things, actually, overall. You know, and you do you, know, you do get quite a few that have this have this sort of lyrical richness to them, actually. Now, next up, we have Elementary Dear Data. I always want to say Elementary My yeah. Dear Data. I don't know, you know, what the, <laughs> what the reading was there. Of course, this is alluding to the fact it's a Sherlock Holmes story. But famously, yeah. as I understand it, Sherlock Holmes never said Elementary My Dear Watson, uh, just as <laughs> Captain Kirk never said Beam Me Up, Scotty. So it's one of these weird yeah. phrases that is so much in the kind of 
iconic lexicon of these, you know, particular uh, franchises or universes or whatever you you know want to call them, um, but actually doesn't you know is really something that's been been uh, planted on them from outside. Um, but anyway, elementary. I nearly did it there. Elementary Deer Data uh, is clearly, you, you know, absolutely doing that. Yeah, definitely. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I, I, maybe they just went, maybe they cut the my because they felt like it would be a bit more of a mouthful. I think Elementary Deer Data has a nice three-tone re- you know, ring to it, really. And maybe it sounds a little bit less patronising. I mean, people always have a go at Pulaski yeah. for how rude she is to Data in this episode. Maybe if you put <laughs> those words into her mouth... It does sound almost. Yeah. It sounds almost like she's the Sherlock Holmes character, sort of patronising data there <laughs> somehow. So maybe it just takes Could the edge be. off it a little bit. Um, yeah. Loud as a whisper. Uh, I couldn't find a reference that that might be. It sort of feels like it might be a quotation. If not, then I suppose it's just a slightly paradoxical expression. Obviously, this is the the story about the deaf uh, character. So he, you, you know, I suppose he can't here anyway there's a sort of sense of of um you know speech and different forms of speech and so on so i guess the sort of paradox of that phrasing uh sort of alludes to that there now the schizoid man this is an episode we talked about uh previously when we were talking about the prisoner because there's an episode of the prisoner called the schizoid man um and this episode was originally given that title as a homage to the prisoner episode because, well, or at least partly because the role of Ira Graves in The Schizoid Man, I believe, was written for Patrick McGowan. And the intention was that he would play that part. And then he wasn't available or he wasn't able to do it or whatever. So they ended up getting, uh, you know, another guy in instead. So here's a title that not only, you know, isn't just alluding to literature or alluding to something else in Star Trek, but it's actually alluding to another episode of another TV show altogether. Um, and obviously, if they had managed to get Patrick McGowan, then that wouldn't just be a sort of footnote or memory alpha. That would be a sort of obvious connection that people might start making kind of right from the get-go. I think it's a real shame they did. I mean, they got W. Morgan Shepard in the end, who's a really good, who was a really good actor. But they, having having McGowan in that role with that title would have been an ace callback to one of those formative, you know, Star Trek original series era shows that's still iconic today. So, yeah, it's a real shame. It's a really real shame that never happened. Absolutely. That would have been, you know, definitely one to see. Uh, up there with the Robin Williams version of A Matter of Time that we never got. I mean, that would have been worth <laughs> yeah. seeing. Um, unnatural Absolutely. Selection is another one of these ones that I think is, is, you know, there's a little bit of a joke there. Obviously, we have the idea of natural selection. This is unnatural selection. So a kind of bit of a pun or a bit of a kind of play on words. One of these titles that seems quite sort of bald on the face of it, but there's a little bit of a kind of nudge and a wink uh, thrown in there as well. Um, then we come to a very popular episode with a great title, The Measure of a Man. And this is an interesting one because I think the title has several meanings and how you interpret the title possibly affects how you interpret the episode. People always debate, is this a Data episode? Is this a Picard episode? Is it even a Riker episode? You know, whose, whose story is this? Obviously on the face of it, it's a story about Data, it's a story about what constitutes a man, you know, how, what is the measure of a man in that sense. But when you look up the origin of this expression, the measure of a man, it actually puts a slightly different inflection on sort of what the episode might be about or, or how we might, uh, choose to kind of summarize it. The measure of a man is 
the title of a book of Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons, and it comes from a quotation where he says, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. In that sense, you could argue Picard is the man who's being measured in this situation, and it's his willingness to stand up for data and to kind of fight as well as he does uh, for data and to really kind of... um, you know, go all out in trying to defend him. That is possibly what's being alluded to. So it's an interesting one, a, a title that possibly the more you look into it, the more it actually slightly complicates what you think it means in its relation to the story. But I sort of like the fact that it almost has two meanings. And I kind of think we can say this is a data episode and a Picard episode and, uh, you, you know, treat the two equally. Um, this uh, obviously famously is an episode from Melinda Snodgrass, who was a lawyer previously, uh, as well as a writer. And I think she's someone who definitely, even within the constraints of Next Gen, brings in some very interesting uh, and slightly tricky episode titles. I, th- I, th- I, th- I think you're right. I think that the fact you can read it in a, diff- in a couple of different ways just makes what is already probably one of Next Generation's best episodes even better, actually. So, yeah, it's a really good title. Next up, After the Measure of a Man, a slightly less beloved episode, The Dauphin. Now, the Dauphin is, I suppose, the French equivalent of the Prince of Wales. The Dauphin is the eldest son of the King of France. Um, obviously, in this episode, I don't think they ever used the word Dauphin in the episode. And again, it's not one that I've seen for a few years, so I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's not ever mentioned. It sort of feels to me like it's a bit of an attempt to make the episode sound classier and more sophisticated uh, than it is really by giving it a French title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> when you actually watch the whole thing, it's a bit like, oh, okay, you know, is that it really? But yeah, it's it is it's a, it's a really nice it's a really nice title. Um, but yeah, not the most memorable episode. Then we have another one of these, uh, another factor in this case um, coming up a little way down, uh, the Icarus factor. So we had the what was the last factor we had? We had the the whatever it was. The, the alternative factor? The was alternative it? factor. We was have that the... factor. Yeah. Okay, so it's not an incident. It's not an episode. It's not a, a, a whatever, but it's a factor. Uh, the Icarus factor, obviously alluding to Icarus and Daedalus, uh, who himself will get a mention later on in, in Star Trek Enterprise. Um, it's an interesting one, though, I suppose, because if you think of Riker as Icarus, you know, Icarus is the one who doesn't listen to good advice and flies too close to the sun and dies horribly as a result. It sort of puts a slightly different spin on their relationship, doesn't it? Because the episode, I feel, sets up the dad as a bit of a dubious character in a way. And, you know, yes, maybe Riker's, I don't know, I don't know maybe Riker's being a bit harsh on him or whatever, but it, it, it feels like by giving it that title, it sort of implicitly suggests that Riker is sort of being hasty or unwise or kind of rejecting his father unreasonably or rejecting good advice. Um, and I'm not really sure that that's the, the, the gist of the episode that we get. Mm, yeah, it doesn't quite fit, does it? It doesn't really... Not. It's been a while since I've watched this one, but yeah, it's not really massively in tune with what... Yeah, it's, it's a strange one. Again, it's one of those episodes you kind of feel like it deserves a better story, this title, and a little bit more of a... you know, evocative kind of tale than the one we actually get. The Icarus Factor followed up by Pen Pals, pretty self-explanatory. And then we get another one of these Q episodes, Q Who. Or as I pointed out in the last episode, I've always thought this should be Q Who, as in... Yoo-hoo! Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, Assuming that's not the intention, uh, because no one else seems to think it is. Uh, Q Who... 
Um, I guess there's Q and there's Who. Uh, you know, they, they should have saved this yeah, though, yeah. for the inevitable cool. Doctor Who uh, crossover. You, you know, that yeah. um, which we got in Star Trek comics. I think at some point we got a Star Trek Doctor. We Who did crossover. You could literally have had a Q slash Who uh, storyline, which would have been that interesting. would have been great, wouldn't but, it? Um, it's, yeah. it's kind of always struck me as odd in a way. I mean, it's kind of odd given everything else that happens with the Borg later on. That Q is the one who introduces us to the Borg. That in itself is sort of an odd choice, but even more so that the first Borg episode... So we get Q episodes that don't have Q in the title. We get Tapestry, All Good Things, Encounter at Farpoint, Death Wish, in Voyager, etc., that don't feel the need to have these sort of slightly grinning uh, Q titles. In a way, it's slightly odd that this one isn't one of them, that, you, you know, this is Q doing something pretty heavy and pretty serious and pretty monumental for Star Trek, as it turns out, but it's given this sort of slightly cheeky Q title, however you interpret it. I think it's because they didn't really appreciate quite what this was, what this was at the time. I think they just sort of threw this out there as, as that means of sort of, you know, the whole thing of Q going, oh, well, you guys don't have a clue what's going on, what's out there. But I don't think anyone really expected the Borg to quite be what they ended up being. So I think had they known, had they had more forward planning, I think they might have been named this a little bit more evocatively or more, you know, given he's one of the more, like you say, it's one of the more serious sort of Q episodes, one of the more meaningful sort of Q episodes. I just think, yeah, the whimsy doesn't quite fit. You're right. And I, and I think that, yeah, I think had they just didn't realise, and maybe it's because you know at the time it was Morris Hurley in charge writing this episode. He didn't he didn't stay after this season. You know, would it have been different if Michael Pillar was already running it and they were building up to best of both worlds and all these things that weren't in the in the pipeline then as such? Makes you wonder. Yeah. After that, we get one of my favourite episode titles, Samaritan Snare. I just think this is a great title because, partly I suppose yeah. because it's one of those ones where the two words are in opposition to each other. You know, the idea of the Good Samaritan, uh, a Good Samaritan helping someone in, you know, in need and a snare, which is like a trap to catch you. Uh, and the idea that these two things could be uh, put together like that. I mean, it's basically a description of a, a sort of con artist or a, a trick of that kind, but I think it's a great, it's a very evocative way of describing it. After that, we have a notorious episode, Up the Long Ladder. Now, I had to look this one up, but Up the Long yeah. Ladder is actually a reference to an Irish nursery rhyme, Up the Long Ladder and Down the Short Rope, which is a description right. of someone being hanged. Uh, so pretty grim oh, in a way, but obviously <laughs> yeah. uh, alluding to the Irish component of that episode, uh, one of the more problematic aspects of that episode. I was also quite amazed to discover that previously this episode went by the working title Send in the Clones, which I think would have been a fantastic choice because obviously this is an episode about cloning and so on, a reference to the Stephen Sondheim song Send in the Clowns. Uh, Send in the Clones, someone obviously decided was a bit too jokey. Uh, you know, even for next gen at this point in the title stakes. They should have called the second uh, Star Wars prequel film that, Send in the Clones. Yeah. That would that would have been, <laughs> instead of Attack of the Clones, that would have yeah. been good. <laughs> yeah. Then we have Manhunt. Here, again, a little bit of a sly joke, I suppose. You've got um, a Manhunt sounds like something that belongs in the world of Dixon Hill. This is a Dixon Hill episode, but it's also an episode about Waxana Troy, uh, lusting around after men and the idea of her as this sort of man-eater so that, you know, Picard is the man being hunted in that sense. So again, it's a kind of deceptively simple title that is actually doing something slightly more than it seems to be. Um, then at the end of season two, we've got another notorious episode, Shades of Grey. Now, I always sort of wondered about this, you know, what, what, do the, what are the Shades of Grey? And in a way, the fact the episode is so little loved and so little watched means that maybe no one ever gives much 
attention to this, but racking my brains for it, I was thinking, you know, are there, it, it's not an episode. I mean, in the pale moonlight could have been called shades of gray. It's not an episode that is in any way interested in gray areas or the kind of lack of absolute morals or any of those things that that phrase, um, generally conveys. But what it did strike me is it's an episode that is about kind of echoes or memories that are being played out in Riker's brain. So it is in a sense about shades, as in like shadows of grey matter, his brain. That's the closest I can come to sort of uh, parsing what sh- what the phrase shades of grey has to do with that episode. And I don't know if that's what the writers were intending. Oh, yeah. But if not, it's a very, Maybe. It's a very odd one. Uh, because it's one of those titles is. that is so obscure that it, it actually almost... It, I mean, it's, when we were talking about language and the idea about, you know, so Stuart's ideas about language last time, the idea of, you know, the sign and the signified and whether there is any... Is there any meaningful link between one and the other? You know, in the case of onomatopoeia, there's an obvious, there's an obvious link. In many cases with language, it's literally just, um, it's almost arbitrary. This almost feels like one of those episodes where the title is fairly arbitrary and we remember it because the episode is so bad that, that, that shades of grey kind of sticks in our memory somehow because of that. But does it really mean anything? Or if it does, do we know what it means? <laughs> What what does it even mean? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, no. Right, so moving on to season three. This is really the era of Michael Piller, I guess, and this is the era when Next Gen kind of became the show that we uh, know and love, that we think of today. Um, kicking things off, we've got Evolution. Pretty straightforward title, I'd say. But after that, we've got one of my favourites. This is another Melinda Snodgrass, and this is The Ensigns of Command. Which is a brilliant title, I think, because unless you happen to know the poem that it's quoting, it's one of those ones where I think it, it, it sounds very Star Trek. You know, you've got ensigns and command. You think this is going to be something about like junior officers, uh, you know, being thrust into the captain's chair or something. The ensigns of command is actually a line from a poem by John Quincy Adams, the uh, president of the United States. It's a poem called The Wants of Man. And this stanza that it comes up in, I will uh, give you here. It's basically in this poem, he he goes through all, all his all the things he wants from life. You know, he wants um, a faithful friend. He wants nice clothes. He wants uh, a wife. He want he wants you know all these various things. And one of the things he wants is um, what he says is, "I want the seals of power and place, the ensigns of command, charged by the people's unbought grace to rule my native land." Nor crown nor scepter would I ask, but from my country's will, by day by night, to ply the task, her cup of bliss to fill. And the ensigns of command are the ensigns, I think, as in uh, the ensigns you get on a sailing ship. Um, They're the flags, basically, that indicate the country that is being represented. So I suppose really the phrase means the trappings of command, the trappings of high office uh, is kind of what he's alluding to there. This was one of those ones I told you that I, I mentioned this last time I borrowed for a chapter title in one of my books, thinking that if anyone questioned me, I could claim I was quoting John Quincy Adams when in reality I was just quoting Star Trek. But that was that was the, the meaning that I was applying to it there. It was a chapter all about um, a man who was sort of thrust into a position of power and authority and had to uh, get to grips with being, you know, being a kind of de facto president in a sense of his small community, as it were. 
And also, two episodes later, Who Watches the Watchers? Another fantastic episode and a great title. And again, one that I have to say I have to look up. Who Watches the Watchers? Or to give it its proper form, Quis Custodiet Ipsos Custodes uh, is a Latin phrase found in the work of the Roman poet Juvenal from his satires. It is literally translated as Who Will Guard the Guards Themselves? Though it's also known by variant translations such as Who Watches the Watchers? and Who Will Watch the Watchmen? So interestingly, the watchers in the original quotation are the watch in the sense of the guards, the the sort of policemen almost, not uh, literally people who watch. But I suppose the um, next gen title is almost it's again, it's kind of a pun. It's a play on words because really what we have is this situation with the duck blind. You have the Starfleet people are observers. They are literally watching uh, the Mintarkans and then they themselves have discovered and there's a sense that they're kind of being watched as well. And then I suppose there's this broader issue about um, kind of the Enterprise looking down the Enterprise as this kind of, you know, God in the sky, almost Picard as being a God. Um, something sort of broader, maybe even about that sense of the kind of all seeing power and of, of being observed. I think it reminds me of um, Watchmen as well. Which obviously, I don't know now, I don't know if that was, that came out not long before this. It would only been about three years. And I don't know if that in itself is also a little bit of a, uh, a sort of a cultural reference there, but I'm not 100% sure if that's something they, they took from. But it, it definitely, yeah, it, and that again is all about surveillance in its own in its own way, you know, in many ways. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's that it's a really good one. It's a really evocative one. Now we've got a few of those kind of. We've got the bonding, the enemy, the price. We've got booby trap. It might be a bit of a stretch to say there's a double meaning in that, but it's not completely uh, impossible that there might be. Um, we've got the vengeance factor, the other factor. one of these factors, <laughs> etc. Yeah, I should have started a tally, really. Uh, the defector. I mean, the defector. A fantastic episode with, I would say, a fairly boring yeah. title, the hunted. Yeah. Then we've got the high ground. Now, this one I think is a little bit more interesting. This is another Melinda Snodgrass because I suppose the high ground could either refer to a kind of strategic geographical statement or it could refer to the moral high ground and since this is the episode that's all about terrorism and the rights and wrongs of terrorism i think it's more it's more the latter that's being invoked but i suppose by calling it the high ground and not the moral high ground it's sort of almost drawing on both meanings potentially there yeah it feels like it could be it's it's a nice play actually it's a nice play on on both of those ideas and it, even though it's a fairly I wouldn't say bland title, but a fairly straightforward title. It's working on a different level to something like The Hunted or The Enemy. You know, they're more straightforward down the line. This is a little bit, there's a little bit more going on to this. Double meanings, which is quite good. Next up after The High Ground, we have Deja Q. Deja Q, another one of these uh, Q titles. This one, I have to say, doesn't quite make sense for me because why, this is the one where Q has lost his powers why is it Deja Q exactly? I suppose he he was a Q. He sort of, but I mean, when you think of Deja Vu, it, it comes with something quite specific. I'm yeah. not quite sure. So literally from the French, Deja means already. So Deja Vu is already seen. So this would mean already or sort of previously Q. Well, I suppose that does make sense if you think about it then. If you think of it as kind of previously Q... And he's not anymore. Well, I think, but the thing maybe, is, maybe it's maybe it fits better than than it seems. It, actually, it might do, but ultimately, it's 
it's just trying to play on the phrase, isn't it? It's trying to play on the idea of deja vu, which everybody's familiar with. Even if deja vu is one of those things where I don't think everybody quite really knows what it means as fully as they think they do. But they all know that that play on that pun, that play on, and it is the first successful pun in the sense that it actually it does work as an actual pun. Deja Q, I get it, but yeah, it, you ha- we've had to reach a little bit to find the tether. So I think they're thinking more in terms of a, of a cute pun more than it really <laughs> making hundred percent sense. You know, yes, because we would expect Deja Q to be. I don't know, Q arrives on the Enterprise and everyone is... Uh, cause and effect. That yeah. Been, that's, yeah, a yeah, yeah. Q, that's a deja vu episode. Exactly. You know? uh, if Q arrived on the Enterprise and there was a time loop and people were sort of half aware of it, yeah. that would make that would make perfect sense. I think maybe maybe we could say it sort of does make sense quite literally, but it's definitely a bit of a stretch to, to make the connection there. At the same time, it's a great title. But the danger with all these Q episode titles is if they're not specific enough, then I think... You start thinking as I did, okay, Deja Q, now which one is that? And as I say, almost quite arbitrarily, you have to like, remember, okay, that's the one with the mariachi band and Q has no clothes on and Data gets to laugh at the end and all this stuff gets associated with it. But other than the fact that there's a Q in the title, it's almost kind of meaningless. Whereas some of them, something like Cupid, perfect yeah, title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, that, that absolutely matches totally with the episode itself. Deja Q followed up by what I think may be possibly the most offensive episode title uh, in the whole of Star Trek. This is the title A Matter of Perspective. Now, nothing wrong with that title in itself, but since this is a story that revolves around an alleged uh, sexual assault, I find it, and, and since the episode itself is so problematic, I think the fact that they chose to call it A Matter of Perspective, we talked about this before when we were doing Rashomon, almost underscores the worst aspects of the episode, which is this sort of idea that comes out of it, which makes no sense and is also deeply uncomfortable that basically, as they as they put it, Riker believes he didn't rape this woman and this woman somehow believes that he did. And as Troy puts it, you both, you know, both of you believe you're telling the truth and therefore it's just, ultimately it just comes down to a matter of perspective. And I think by calling the episode that, it kind of makes it even more... It, it emphasises that that element of the episode, which otherwise the episode seems quite keen to forget about. It sort of loses interest in that whole question and brushes it under the rug. But then you've got the title of the episode almost drawing your attention back to it again. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's difficult in that in that sense. In that it, it's a, it's the kind of title potentially they might thought have thought through better in this day and age, really, and not and not frame it in those terms. Because yeah, when you look into it, it's it, yeah, it's not it's not very good. It's a bit, it, it feels like it, it, it's a title that sort of makes sense for the episode, but mm, yeah. Then we have uh, Yesterday's Enterprise, fairly straightforward title, I suppose, but again, quite evocative. I think, you know, words like yesterday, we talked about, you know, mm. all our yesterdays, yesteryear, mm. uh, it does kind of conjure that sense of nostalgia. Yeah. In this case, for a story that, you know, it is kind of, it's sort of nostalgic in some ways, but it's also a pretty dark mm. uh, take on those things. But, you know... Uh, effective one. Mm. Then we have The Offspring, obviously a reference to the uh, punk rock band with that <laughs> scary guy uh, you know, who's always jumping up and down and obviously. shouting, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sins of the Father, fairly uh, self-explanatory, but also a quotation, right? Sins of the Father being the idea that it's wrong for, you know, the sins of the father to be visited upon the child. 
Now, in Klingon culture, it's very much not wrong. We hear that this is normal, um, that the shame, it must be in um, uh, Redemption, I think, where Worf says that the shame of his father will be uh, visited even on Alexander, you know, even who's a little child, basically, that, that for generations, these kind of um, mm. sins will be... Um, yeah carried down through the generations. You don't get a vast amount of Bible quotes, though. I mean, that's something that is is not always present in a lot of these episode titles. So this one, in the, in that sense, is a little different. You know, it, it's it's got a religious connotation that Star Trek often maybe avoided. So it's interesting they went down that road for this. One or two Bible quotes, I think, in DS9 when we get to there. And I'm wondering whether that might be a sort of Ron Moore element because i mm. i don't remember who wrote this episode but i know it was was ron moore with with somebody else but yeah, yeah. so that could be if it's a klingon episode there's a decent chance it's ron moore isn't it yeah, well, yeah, about. yeah. um jumping ahead a little bit uh, we had the episode mm. tin man now this one i find a bit disappointing because tin man is the name of that weird spaceship entity type thing with its slightly wonky special effects where they film them backwards to make the chair and everything I've never particularly loved this episode. I don't know why I have some bit of a problem with it. But um, the name Tin Man, so in the name in the title obviously refers to the entity in the show, but it, it always strikes me as very strange that you have basically a version of the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. And we even have in the episode The Schizoid Man, um, Ira Graves uh, referencing the song okay. uh, yeah, If I Only okay. Had a Brain or a Heart or whatever it is, the t- If I Only Had a Heart, the Tin Man. Anyway, this, the song from The Wizard of Oz and making that connection between Data and the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. So it always seems strange to me that you've got an episode called Tin Man and it's not an episode about Data and his, you know, sort of lack of or burgeoning humanity. Mm, yeah, missed opportunity there, definitely. I don't get that, making it more of a Deanna Troy story mm. as opposed to Data. Yeah, odd. Hollow Pursuits, obviously, another one with a pun. You know, they're hollow, O-W, but they are also hollow, H-O-L-O, Pursuits. Um, so a fairly obvious pun there, but, you know, these next-gen titles, even if there often is a little bit of a double meaning in there. And then we've got The Most Toys, um, which, again, is is a reference to an expression, right? Yeah, he who dies with the most toys wins. It was a, strangely, a popular saying found on uh, bumper stickers and T-shirts in the 80s, but it was first attributed to uh, Malcolm Forbes, the the millionaire, and, and there was an alternative phrase to it that the person who dies with the most toys is still dead. So I guess it's a a reference to, well, I mean, in terms of the actual episode, it's about a collector, isn't it? The episode's kind of about somebody who is, you know, desperately trying to collect things. So it's, I'm guessing it's sort of about, in its own way, a level of greed, and it's about a level of consumption, but... It's uh, it's it's it seems like a strange. I mean, I can't really remember the episode very well, but it seems like a strange, a, a strange title, a strange phrase to borrow from. I think it's kind of ironic, isn't it? I mean, the the collector in the episode, Kivas Facho, is a real, a really awful piece of work. You know, he is someone who cares nothing about other people or or moral behaviour or anything. All he cares about is acquiring these objects, and he treats data as a an object to be collected, really. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's more the second... I-, I took it to be more the second of those two meanings that... Uh, and I'm just paraphrasing. But yes, he who dies with the most toys wins 
but he's still dead, basically. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's a hollow victory. It's the kind of... Um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean anything because ultimately he's, you're still going to die at the end of it, however much you've acquired. Um, mm. So that's, that's sort of the context yeah. I took it in. But I suppose you could say, if, if that's the original quotation, that is Kivas Fajo's credo, really. A bold title for the following episode, Sarek. This is the episode with Sarek. It's called Sarek. Uh, on the other <laughs> hand, you know, at the time, bringing back Sarek was a big deal. And I remember um, reading, there was a discussion when they were writing this episode about whether they could have Sarek use the word Spock or not. Because this was, I suppose, the time... And I don't know if this was an edict that had come in along with Michael Pillar, because obviously this wasn't the case right at the start with Next Gen, but by this point there was a real feeling they wanted this show to stand on its own two feet. They didn't want it to just be kind of... Um, repeating, trying to kind of repeat the highs of the original series. Um, and so there was some hesitation about doing kind of original series tie-in storyline. So in some ways you could say by calling it Sarek, A, it's a great tease to the, the fans because if all, you know, if all you know is that next week's episode is going to be called Sarek, you've got something to get excited about. But also it's a kind of statement uh, of some kind um, that, you know, here is this original series character who can exist within the next generation now. Kind of the first proper example of not being afraid to hit that head on, you know, and say, yeah, you know, we've reached the point now where we don't mind. We'll do this. We'll put Sarek in there. We'll tell you it's Sarek. And that, that in itself shows a bit of a confidence, I think, you know, being able to do that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's good. I mean, they could have gone for other titles. You know, they could have gone for the the Elder Statesman or the Vulcan, whatever. I don't know, something like that. But it it's exciting. You know, you see that, Sarek, you're like, ooh, Sarek's coming in, coming into this great you know and also Sarek is absolutely the one holding that episode together I mean as much as you've got a fantastic performance from Patrick Stewart uh, particularly that scene at the end Sarek is really the, the the core of this story in a way so you've got this character who's absolutely going to hold the stage for the 45 minutes you're right they could have gone with you know logic lost or I don't know do you know what I mean so, something a yeah, bit more yeah, yeah sort of mm. mysterious or evocative or whatever, but they just went with, yeah, know, yeah this is Sarek's story. It's called Sarek. Uh, that's what, you know, what you see is what you get. After yeah. that, we have, I think, one of the most successful, if slightly obvious, puns, Menage a Troy. I mean, this is a pretty cheap <laughs> joke, but it, it's perfect. It's good, though. It, it fit, and, it, and it fits yeah, yeah. perfectly the sort of, uh, both the tone and the plot of the episode. So, uh, yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah. you know, successful, if shameless pun there. Transfigurations, fairly straightforward. And then we've got a very celebrated episode, The Best of Both Worlds, named, of course, for the Hannah Montana song. <laughs> oh, really? You, really? You're not, you're not familiar with that one, Tony? <laughs> strange, I, strange. I only know this I know, one. I, I've never seen an episode of Hannah Montana, but my son has the complete Disney yeah, right. uh, song collection, <laughs> most of which are, I, songs I have to say I am familiar with, and this one is... It's a right. pretty good tune. It's quite, you know, you should check it out. Uh, it's, it's worth a listen. No, yeah, that is okay. not what the episode is known for. Uh, the episode, <laughs> you know, what the episode is named for. But interestingly, there is a story, I think, around the naming of the best of both worlds. Um, because it is a slightly odd title for that episode, if you think about it. Uh, what are the two worlds? Is the idea that Picard is the best of, you know, the cutest is the best of the Borg world and the human world. It's it's a strange again. It sort of seems to get the moral of the story, if you know what I mean. If there's some suggestion that Lacutus is a a positive step, now apparently the title actually originated in an earlier version of the script, 
when the idea was that both Picard and Data would be kind of taken by the Borg and would be, I think, sort of two-vixed, you know, would somehow be fused or would be combined. So originally, at some earlier stage of the script, this idea for this story was one of mixing two, I suppose, the mechanical and the human and, and forming the best of both worlds. Arguably, I suppose, what we get now with Picard, you know, going into season two, uh, he is now the, you know, the human Picard in the synth body. So he, he really does have the best of both worlds. But the title stuck. I mean, it's obviously it's one of those ones you can't think of that phrase without thinking, oh, wow, it's, you know, one of the best Star Trek episodes ever. And, you know, if you were lucky enough to be watching it at the time or unlucky enough to be watching at the time, having to wait all those months to find out what happened, it's so fused with our sense of not just that episode, but I feel almost like that that moment, you know, between part one and part two with that cliffhanger, all of those associations but it is one of those ones where really the title doesn't quite convey what the episode is about weirdly mm, yeah yeah i hadn't really thought of that but you're right actually they could have gone with all kinds of different other titles really but yeah it's it's that's, that's really interesting yeah and i don't know how well known those facts are so that's yeah that's cool so moving on to season four we've got some fairly straightforward episodes family uh brothers episode titles mm. suddenly human little bit more legacy exactly. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're um, a bit, then we've got yeah. the episode remember me now i don't know how relevant to the i mean obviously there's what's going on in that episode is people seem to be sort of forgetting about people and what's going on and so on the title could be a reference to either hamlet you have the ghost in hamlet saying remember me could be a, a shakespearean illusion it could also be an allusion to the lyrics to the original star trek theme music the final lines of which are, but tell him while he sails his starry sea, remember, remember me. So those lyrics, obviously uh, written by Gene Roddenberry, originally written largely, it has to be said, so that he could screw over Alexander Courage uh, by only paying him 50% of what he was due for the royalties for the song by claiming that he wrote lyrics to it. But, you know, who knows? It, possibly either or neither of those reference points being alluded to here. But, you know, it's a possibility either way. Uh, then, yeah, you're right. We have Legacy, Reunion, uh, Future Imperfect. Future Imperfect, I suppose, is a grammar pun uh, insofar as, you know, you have the past perfect, the past imperfect, the future, the future you know, it's a, a pun about kind of grammatical tenses and so on. But really, it's just being used to say, here's this future. Uh, it's not real. It's not true. It's not. It's, it's Frankly, it's, it's, it's better than uh, quite a lot of potential futures that we see in Star Trek. But um there we go. One episode I think has quite an interesting title in some ways is Data's Day because it's it seems very simple and straightforward and it is purely descriptive as far as it is Data's Day. But I think there's almost a sort of deliberate innocence about that title. It sounds almost like a children's book. It could be like Spot's Day Out or do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. And I think there is something of Data's innocence and naivety in there yeah. that they're trying to capture in the title there. Yeah, definitely, yeah. It, it's that sort of focus kind of thing in a way you know having it be data's day it's you know, not every character would have an, an episode sort of with their name in you know you couldn't imagine you know troy's weekend you know it just it wouldn't it wouldn't <laughs> be the same <laughs> it wouldn't be the same you know data him being quite a whimsical character i think helps to have those kind of episode titles yeah it's quite a good one well that's an interesting that's another interesting sort of subset isn't it that we could think about as we go through who is it who gets their name in the titles i mean we had mm. spock's brain we've had yeah. data's day uh, I'm trying to think who else do we get we get a few more with data you know a fistful of datas I don't think anyone else gets any 
I, I can't think of any other episodes off the top of my head that have any of the TNG cast with their name in the title. Well, Menasha Troy, obviously, but well, arguably but yeah, that's okay. a more general, uh, a yeah. more general sort of joke. Yeah, it's a good point. We don't get a, uh, you know... Just data. Yeah. No, we don't get something, something, wharf, something. No. That is a very interesting point. Mm. When you get to DS9, we get the episode Dax, obviously. Mm. I'm trying to think. What else do we get? Alman Bashir. So we get Bashir Yeah, in there. Bashir. Yeah. There's not a vast amount, really. We have two, two Vicks, I guess, in Voyager. And you've got Doc, the Doctor, dear. I think is that. Well, actually, he's the one called. No, dear Doctor's in um, Enterprise. Dear Doctor is, is Enterprise, actually. Yeah, so you've got Tinker know. Tenor, Doctor Spy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's one. Although yeah. I think arguably that's Doctor as a, a job title rather than yeah, as a name. Yeah, you could argue. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting, <laughs> interesting question. Do we get any yeah. more? Any other? We'll uh, see as we go. Named. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out for them. Yeah. Moving on. The next thing that I had highlighted was Galaxy's Child. Just because, again, I wonder whether there's a slight pun there that the the creature is that Galaxy's Child, insofar as it's a child of space and of, you know, outer space. But also, this is a story about Leah Brahms, who designed the Galaxy-class starship, and that there's a kind of link there. I don't know whether that's mm. deliberate or not, but it just crossed my mind there could be a kind could of be. there. It's a nice quite sci- science fiction-y title. It's the sort of thing you could imagine an Arthur C. Clarke novel being named or some someone along, the, along those lines, you know. It's quite good. Calls back calls back slightly to Friday's Child as well, arguably in the yeah. original series, you know. Yeah. But yeah, you're yeah. right. It does it does sound like a sort of old-fashioned sci-fi mm. uh, sci-fi title. The Nth Degree, we've got another Barclay episode with an interesting title. Uh, the nth degree, obviously, being an expression, you know, something, something to the nth degree. I suppose we imagine that Barclay is advancing his brain to the nth degree. It's also a mathematical kind of formulation, which sort of makes sense with the science and uh, sort of high tech aspect of that episode. It's, it, it, it's again one of those recognisable phrases, you know, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's quite well placed. And then we've got Cupid, which, as I say, for my money, is probably the best of the. Q puns because yeah. just because I think it a a it sounds you, you know Cupid with a Q and Cupid with a C are audi- like are indistinguishable from each other as sounds mm. so it mm. works perfectly as a pun on that level and B yeah. because it exactly I mean you could say it doesn't say anything about Robin Hood or you you know the kind of that precise context but it exactly puts a pin on what Q is doing in this episode Q is playing yeah. Cupid. Uh, so yeah. it's you know it's a it's a pun that kind of w- works very uh, clearly in just you know it's four good. letters basically it's a good one yeah, yeah. Um, the drumhead is the next episode which I think is an interesting choice again because obviously Picard makes the connection between what's happening in the present and various historical parallels you know they talk about the Salem witch trials they talk about uh, he, he talks about the idea of a drumhead trial in ancient naval. Uh, form of basically, uh, you, you know, bad justice, essentially. But I suppose it's quite interesting that as the title for the whole episode, that's what gets settled on. Not even something from that speech that he quotes that everyone loves in that scene where he says, you know, the first chain forged, the first, you know, whatever. They could easily have gone for something a bit more sort of soaring, a bit more kind of grandiose from that speech and taken that as the title. But they go with this idea of the drumhead, which sounds, from the way Picard describes it, a bit grubby, a bit sort of hasty. 
shameful. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's the title that they stick on it. Yeah, very interesting that, yeah. You, you, you almost would expect it to be more of a classical title this episode but yeah they don't go down that road now the next one i'd highlighted is um the mind's eye the mind's eye is an interesting one because the mind's eye is technically a quotation from hamlet but i think it's one of those quotations that it's almost a bit like um what's known as a dead metaphor uh you, you know which is where there's a phrase that is in such common parlance that we don't really think about what it literally meant at some point or what it's referring to i don't know whether most people if they you know the the mind's eye obviously is quite a well-known phrase if you talk about you know something's in my mind's eye i can um you you know something i can sort of picture mentally and obviously in the episode it it means something a little bit more specific or a little you know the the uh, meaning is slightly different i suppose because this is about geordie being um kind of taken over and uh and controlled and and being sort of operated from within his his mind or being kind of operated from within you know we talked about this in relation to the manchurian candidate and the idea of people being kind of uh reprogrammed in that way but it just it's so it's an interesting one it's another one of those ones that may or may not be a literary quotation or may just be a kind of uh, a well-known phrase that's being used yeah our first ever episode that was when we did that, when we talked about the Manchurian Candidate. That was our second ever episode, I think you'll find. Was it? Our first episode oh, was, yes. we did uh, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, you're right. I'm glad you've got a good memory. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next one I, I wanted to pull up was Darmok, my favourite episode of Next Generation. And I love the fact that this episode is called Darmok because it encapsulates everything that the episode is about, that they can call it Darmok and that that means something because... Darmok is not even a character in the episode. You know, you might just about think they would call the episode Dathon. Okay, this is an episode about this Tamarian captain. They might call it Incident at Eladrel 4. They might call it all sorts of things. But by calling it Darmok, it, it centers the meaning of the episode on this story about Darmok and Jalada, Tanagra, a story which we can only understand at all, uh, having watched the episode and sort of having lived through the episode. Um, and therefore, I suppose, you know, if you're watching the episode for the first time and that word comes up on the screen, it's a completely alien word. It means literally nothing to anyone watching it for the first time. But then by the time they get to the end of the episode, they understand what it was called and what it meant. Um, so it's almost a perfect metaphor for the episode itself. Yeah, yeah. And it is very much the kind of title, unlike a lot of the Next Generation titles, where you wouldn't have any real idea what it was about going in. And mo- most of these, a lot of these... You know, like there's a few coming up, things like Disaster, you know, The Game, <laughs> you know, New Ground. You know, you can probably find, you know, Hero Worship. You can probably find some, you know, get some grip of what this is going to be. But Darmok is completely alien. And that absolutely, as you say, it really fits in terms of what the episode is. So, yeah, it's a, re- it's a really good one. And like you say, it's a heck of an episode. Then we have Silicon Avatar. Now, this is an interesting one. I sort of had to look up the meaning of the word avatar because I suppose we tend to think of an avatar these days as a sort of, like in terms of computing and games and that sort of thing, your your avatar is your sort of, uh, your representation within a constructed world, for example, or even in the film Avatar, kind of goes with a similar concept. Now, an avatar apparently is... Uh, originally the manifestation of a deity so i don't know i don't really know what that is i mean obviously we assume it refers to the crystalline entity 
perhaps it's suggesting that this incredibly powerful thing is a sort of manifestation of something. It's a curious one. I've never been quite sure literally what this means, but it's a great title. It's a great sci-fi title because it sounds very kind of uh, out there Mm. and kind of a little bit scary and a little bit alien and and different and so on. But Mm. um, I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on Silicon Avatar exactly? You know, what kind of avatar are we dealing with here? Well, I I think like, like you said, I think it's just this idea that the crystalline entity is quite you know, powerful and, and all, all consuming. And, you know, you say it's quite, it's quite a scary and alien title. I found the episode quite scary. Actually. I remember it as a kid. I remember it being one that really stood out to me. It's not necessarily one of the best episodes of TNG, but it really quite got under my skin when I was a kid. I found the crystalline entity really quite scary. So I think it's, it, it sort of fits that very cold technical, uh, alien sense of what, what this thing, because the crystalline entity, let's face it, is one of the weirder, you know, creations, one of the weirder foes that they have, they face very, very sci-fi idea. And, you know, I think, I think that's represented in a title. Like you say, it doesn't entirely make a world of sense. Not like Darmok makes sense while still being alien, but it's good. It's evocative and it's, it stands out, you know, far more than a lot of the other titles in this show does. Then we have unification. Now it just strikes me. Unification obviously is about the Romulan Vulcan unification you could argue there's a little bit of a tease there as well, though, because this is an episode that unifies the next generation and the original series. There are these two things coming together. And also it was intended as a kind of trailer, in a sense, for the movie, The Undiscovered Country, which came out immediately afterwards. So might be a little bit of a stretch, but maybe there's some more unifying kind of going on behind the scenes there as well. Could be. And it almost feels like you could have used that in a way for a movie like Generations. You know, it has a similar sort of title in a way. You could have had Generations be the title of this two-parter. They do feel quite in step of, of sort of suggesting a slightly meta Star Trek sort of titles in a way that go beyond the actual plot. But that's the good thing about this one. It is a good one because it is about unification. The actual plot is about that as well. So, yeah, it's it's simple, but it's one of those one-word titles that's actually quite clever and quite relates to the episodes it's yeah it's a good one and obviously it's a classic really great two-part episode as well then we have a matter of time again i wonder if there's an element of a sort of pun in there i mean obviously it's sort it's sort of a pun already because it's it's saying it's a matter of time it's it's the time incident it's the time fact do you know what i mean it's using matter in that sort of general sense but there's also i suppose essentially you might say it's only a matter of time uh, you could say it's only a matter of time before truth comes out in the episode. There's also a sort of sense of kind of crisis and uh, the, the pressure on Picard to make that decision in that moment. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? So, something about that that maybe is kind of being alluded to there. It's, it's a sort of an odd one because it's not... I've always thought it's strange. This seems to be pitched as quite a funny episode and it's not an ostensibly comic title. She sounds quite serious. A matter, a matter of time it makes you think of a matter of life and death, a matter of, I so, suppose so that's, that's the other illusion maybe. And the, the dilemma at the centre of the episode is literally a matter of life and death. It's a kind of a big deal um, somehow. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. There's, there's mm. almost another meaning lurking under there when you use the, that phrase sort of a yeah, matter of, be. I don't know. So we had a matter of perspective, yeah. now a matter of time. Yeah, this one far less problematic though. <laughs> yeah, basically, they could have done a pack counterpart yeah. called a matter of space, and uh, and stuff yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah, that would have been good. Yeah. The next one that I had to pull out. I mean, tell me if there's anything else that you wanted to 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 jump on. Power play again. I wonder if there's sort of a 
a little bit of a pun there. I mean, a power play obviously is something you do to kind of enhance your standing to, to, to sort of seize power. That is kind of what these, whatever they are, weird alien spirit things possessing people do. But there's also, they're, they're kind of slightly sort of super charged, super powered. I don't know. It's a weird one. It's a, a slightly odd one because again, it sounds oddly, it sounds oddly sort of prosaic for, and kind of contemporary for something that does revolve around like possessing bodies and controlling them and all this weird business and the kind of uh, creepy strangeness. That's another one that actually is quite a scary episode in some ways. It's got quite a bit of edge to it. Um, Slightly odd title, I think, but, you know. The First Duty, I think, is an interesting one because, again, I suppose, first of all, it, it asks the question immediately before you see the episode, well, what is the first duty? And then the episode has to kind of explain that. Now, the first duty in this case, we're told, is the truth. Isn't Wesley's first duty to Picard and to the Enterprise and to Star Trek rather than to, you know, Nick Lacano and and his bunch? So I think it's kind of an interesting one. It's almost one of those titles that makes a question that then the episode has to answer. Yeah, and it, it feels vaguely political as well, which obviously, to some extent, the episode is, because it is about a tribunal, it is about, you know, these cadets and what they're doing and somebody dying and this kind of thing. So there is a political element to it as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good episode. It's a good title. It sort of has different, you know, ideas going on behind it. Well, one, one we've skipped over that I thought you might, that was quite good actually, a little bit further back was the Masterpiece Society. Which is is not, you know, it, it, it's that episode about the Enterprise trying to save a uh, genetic genetically engineered colony, and so, it, and you know, they end up upsetting a balance and things like that. So I suppose it's sort of getting at the idea that the Enterprise, even though it's on this utopian mission, actually gets involved and makes things worse for a society that consider themselves perfect. You know, a masterpiece society. But I mean, I, I just think it's a really nice title. That I think it's, I think it's a very you know, lyrical sort of description. Not, not the greatest episode in the world, but uh, I, I, I really think that's a very quite quite grandiose title, surrounded by a lot of fairly basic ones. Really, it's another one that's sort of ironic as well, I suppose, isn't it? Because yes, these people think they're great, they think they're perfect, but it is fairly obvious to us from the outside that they're not. You know, and there's this irony in that episode that it's only because of Geordie's visor which they would never have invented because they wouldn't have allowed him to be born blind, uh, that that their society can be saved. I also sort of wonder, um, I know in America, the word masterpiece has this association. Don't they have, is it called a masterpiece? Is it like a PBS thing? All our period dramas that say the BBC Master- makes, yeah, makes a period drama, yeah. it gets broadcast in the States as a masterpiece. I can't think of the... PBS masterpiece production or so something like that. So the idea of a masterpiece, I mean, you know, literally we think of a masterpiece, we might say, you know, King Lear is a masterpiece or the Mona Lisa is a masterpiece. You know, it means to us a, a classic of art that has kind of is at the very, you know, highest level. I just wonder whether in America there's also sort of association with a kind of, it's almost a sort of cultural snobbery or a kind of, you know, sort of saying, here, here are these these new things, but these are new masterpieces. We're sort of feeding you masterpieces somehow. Um, and there's something about that that kind of fits a little bit with this society, but also, frankly, a little bit with Next Generation more generally and the kind of cultural values. You know, Next Generation is the show where everyone, you know, goes out to classical concerts in the evening and, uh, you know, performs Serrano de Bergerac and 
recites poetry and goes to art classes and all these kind of things. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, you know, on Voyager, they're like going to uh, drive in cinemas and, you know, eating popcorn and, and, you know, playing Captain Proton and that kind of thing. So I don't know, it just struck me, is there an element of that that word masterpiece has that sort of extra meaning of uh, not just something that is kind of perfect and historical, but something that is perceived to be sort of highbrow, I suppose, somehow. Could be, yeah. That's a good, good point, yeah, possibly. Okay, so um, moving on, the next one I had kind of highlighted was I Borg. Now, we talked about this a little bit before, how the episode I Mud referenced I Robot, the Isaac Asimov story, uh, filmed with Leonard Nimoy as an episode of The Outer Limits. Here we've got I Borg basically, I think, doing the same thing and kind of making a very similar story in some ways to iRobot, which was all about the kind of prejudice that the robot faced. And and here in iBorg, we've got this kind of being focused uh, on a Borg. A, a very memorable Next Generation episode. And it's obviously also getting at the idea that this is the first point they start to experiment with the idea that the Borg are redeemable, perhaps, or at least there is some level of individuality that you can bring back. And this is, you know, iBorg then starts a whole chain reaction of of ideas that eventually lead to Seven of Nine, basically, in Voyager. So this is the, the starting point. iBorg is a reference to that, but it's also making the point that this is, this is the moment they start to try and humanise the Borg a bit. And, you know, arguably, I think most people would probably agree the Borg actually were the best they ever have been or ever will be probably in the best of both worlds in a way and may- maybe first contact as well but uh, and that humanizing the borg only led to diminishing returns in a way but at the same time it's still a good story and i think i think it's an effective an effective title for it really. next up after i borg the next phase again a bit of a pun this is all about people being out of phase and it's also about them being thought dead so the next phase being you know like the next whatever the next life, the next uh, plane of existence, uh, the next phase. So a little bit of a kind of pun there on the idea of an afterlife, I suppose, and this idea of phasing as a kind of alternative to cloaking. Um, After that, we had the inner light. Now, this was an interesting one. I was sort of looking up, because obviously, again, this is one of those episodes that's so well known and so beloved. And people, you know, just sort of associate the name, the inner light with that episode. But I was thinking, you know, well, what is, what is the inner light referring to? Obviously, I suppose it's referring to a kind of maybe a sort of spiritual experience for Picard, uh, something that is kind of within him. It has vaguely religious uh, associations. When I looked it up, it actually turns out that the writer, Morgan Gendel, uh, who, who wrote this episode and a number of other episodes as well, um, said he took the title uh, from a Beatles song. The B-side of Lady Madonna was a song less well-known, called The Inner Light. And he said he had this ambition uh, from that point on that he wanted every uh, Star Trek episode that he wrote to be named after a Beatles track, but it didn't work out. The, the other ones that he wrote, he wrote Starship Mine, uh, The Passenger, a couple of others, I think, uh, Armageddon Game. As far as I know, the Beatles never recorded a song called Armageddon Game, but, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but apparently he did actually try it. With, with Starship Mine, he wanted it to be called Revolution. Uh, but that wasn't allowed because they'd already done evolution and they thought it would sound too similar. I mean, so there's someone who literally, uh, in, he writes his episodes and he sees the title as a chance to play a little game or have a little in-joke or kind of uh, do something that uh, amuses him personally rather than necessarily really having a huge amount 
of kind of meaning to impart. I, I mean, it's obviously gone down as one of the. I mean, what, gone down as one of the more memorable TNG episodes for lots of reasons in a light, and I think it's 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 quite a beautiful title. I think in many ways, I think I think it represents you know the 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 episode itself. I think I think it's a, it's quite a soft pastoral title for an episode that's very much like that and i think i think i think it very much fits the kind of story that it's tell- it, that, that that's being told actually it's 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 a good it's a good one man of the people i think is an ibsen play but it's also i would say just generally a sort of expression someone who's a man of the people i guess you could say is there a double meaning this is a man who's sort of of the people in that he's draining their energy and I don't know. I think it's more just the fact he's he's perceived to be a man of the people, a kind of good representative, a good person, but in fact he's a crook. He's a, a bad egg. True Q, uh, another Q pun. I quite like this one. I think True Q, as in True Blue, is what's being alluded to here. True Blue, as in the expression, uh, not a political expression. I sort of always wondered if it's a political expression, but apparently, idea alludes to the idea of blue being the colour of constancy. One theory holds that this relates to the unchanging blue sky, another to the fastness of blue dye that will not run. Um, so that's the idea of a true, of true blue. And I suppose Amanda Rogers is the, I don't know, is she a true Q? She doesn't know she's a Q, but I suppose, I guess that's the, that's the, the idea that she, that she really is a Q because she, she manifests her powers to save people's lives and, and, you know, uses them for good and so on. I, I assume that's kind of what they're going for with that title. But then again, it's kind of one of these Q ones that you're not quite sure. Well, was someone just going through a list of words that rhyme with ooh and <laughs> yeah. trying to think of phrases that they could use and chuck a Q into them? And almost, you could almost have like a Q episode generator that just works on that basis, couldn't you? And then write the episode to the title. Absolutely. A Fistful of Data's fantastic episode title. Uh, obviously alluding to A Fistful of Dollars, but that episode was written under a different title. It was written under the title The Good, The Bad and The Klingon, uh, which also is a great, it's also a great episode title, possibly more sort of broadly funny in a way. I mean, they're both quite funny yeah. titles. I think I like A Fistful of Data's better. And there you go. Mm. It's another example of Data getting his name into the episode, having that kind of rare, rare honour. And then the final episode that I thought we could just touch on today because this is the last episode of next gen before next gen was sharing the airwaves uh with deep space nine so what i figured was next time we come back to this subject we'll talk about deep space nine and voyager and the kind of final stretch of next gen as well but the final next gen episode when next gen ruled the waves uh on its own so to speak is chain of command you wouldn't necessarily think this is an episode with a pun in there, but it just struck me this could be another one of these slightly sneaky uh, underground puns insofar as, yes, this is a two-parter all about the chain of command on the Enterprise and um, Captain Jellicoe and his kind of harsh methods. It is also an episode where you see the commander of the Enterprise in chains for a sustained period of time. And, you know, maybe, mm. again, there's a slight revolution there. Because on one level, it's weird to call this two-parter chain of command as if the two-parter is really about what happens on the Enterprise, when actually what it's yeah. so much more famous for is what happens to Picard in that cell. So, anyway, just a slight, yeah. you know, that could slight be. possibility of a double meaning there. Yeah. Whatever we think, it's a, it's a great two-parter. I mean, it's an interesting one as a two-parter because the two parts are very different. It feels more in some ways like some of those DS9 two-parters. And obviously mm. in DS9, and we'll come on to this next time around, 
they're two parters. They weren't just part one and part two. Sometimes they were, but often they were, you know, improbable cause and the die is cast. You had these, and, or in Purgatory, Shadow and by Inferno's Light. So you had these kind of titles, mm. these two parters where they didn't want to say they were part one and two of the same story, but they'd have these echoes between the titles. So, um, you know, with Purgatory and Inferno, for example, linking those two stories as one thing, but one thing with two different halves somehow. And Chain of Command obviously doesn't do it that way. Chain of Command unifies the two. It's saying this is part one and part two, but at the same time, actually, when you watch them, there's quite a strong sense of, okay, part one is the setup for a kind of quite remarkable sort of 45 minutes of theatre almost in part two. Do you know what I mean? There's a kind of... Yeah, yeah. They're very much not two equal parts, even though the title seems to want to say that they are. Mm, And I suppose that's sort of a holdover of the fact they hadn't quite got to the point yet where they were titling two-parters in different ways. I think by the time you got to DS9, TV had started doing that in other ways. You know, you'd had had shows like The X-Files that were starting to do Mm. that. You'd You'd started getting shows... Like Buffy, that were potentially starting to do that, I think at points as well, and they were they were they were playing with the idea that two parters didn't have to be called, you know, yes, rascals one, rascals two, you know, <laughs> that, that whole thing. It didn't have to be quite that simple. And I think, and because I think at first they were worried, because the 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 long standing thing was that for the most part, two parters had the same name because they didn't want audiences to be confused. Whereas I think after this point, they start audiences. They start to realise audiences can can deal with that. And had that been the case now, I think you might have had Chain of Command be part one, and then something like you know there are four lights, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, be part two. Do you know what I mean? So it would have been yeah, would have been uh, fascinating to to see what to think about what the alternate title would have been for part two if they'd have thought about it. Well. There's a question for the Babel Conference, if ever there was one. And I mean, this is a whole, <laughs> whole other yeah, topic we could be kind of embarking on is, you know, what might you mm. call some of these episodes? Uh, you know, the, especially the ones where the title doesn't quite keep, seem to fit, you know, what would your alternatives be? So uh, let us know. It'd be an interesting conversation yeah. to carry on there. And in the meantime, uh, we will leave things here. Not quite on a cliffhanger, but on a certainly a key moment in Star Trek history. And we'll be back next time to look at the next kind of wave of Star Trek titles. This is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week, though. So have a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM. The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Like you're saying about JL, I remember at the time reading this, Rafi calling him JL... And I remember that feeling weird to me. Like you, the first time it was in the comic. And then I was like, JL, that's kind of casual. But like you said, she kind of talks to that. And But now rereading it, when I got to that, it just makes so much sense because I'm used to it now. It just seems so natural. But at the time, it felt a little odd. Earl Grey. This is that McCoy is still alive. Mm-hmm. And he goes and picks up McCoy. And Scotty and McCoy have adventures throughout the galaxy in their own run. No, then they go and find the Nexus and get and get <laughs> Kirk back, and it's the three of them that go. Uh, and they go to Romulus, of course, as well to help out Spock with the reunification. Yeah. And then they go to the Genesis planet because obviously there's remnants of it after it blew up, and they find some Spock DNA, and they use some. 
Borg maturation chamber to make themselves a mini Spock. But it goes wrong, so Spock is only like six inches tall. <laughs> Pocket yes. Spock. And... And McCoy can put him in his pocket all the time. And like, but he's, he's, call so him, McCoy love he's that. got a, yeah. a wee kind of lapel pocket. Yeah, I like this, a breast pocket. We'll call him Spocket. Spocket. Spocket <laughs> in McCoy's pocket. Uh, I like that. Okay. Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. That whole title sort of feels like the the beginnings of what Roddenberry would do with with Q, and having all those play on Q basically. Oh, yeah. Which I think I think had exactly. you had Mud come back, you know, more. It's almost a shame that Discovery hasn't picked up that. And and when they had Here Harry Mud, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They should have done that. They resisted the temptation for the cheap. I mean, that is, as I say, there is always a temptation with these things to go for the cheap pun. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the right decision to, to resist. I don't know. I, um, I think a cheap pun is the right call every time, Duncan, to be honest. The ready room. What does it mean to be artificial? And when you cross that barrier from being biological mm-hmm. to being artificial... But your your memories have been transferred. How much of who you are is the memory that you acquire over the course of your life? And how much of it is the biological system of your body? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at MC and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. 
You're blended all right. <laughs>